0: I'd like to call this meeting of the Plan Commission to order. It's 5.30. We have a quorum. Um, Barely, but we have a quorum. Uh, Is anyone registered for public comment?
1: Uh, They are none. Okay.
0: Okay. Communications, disclosures, and recusals. Um, I uh, know the applicants on item 9. Uh, it will affect my position on their issue. Anyone else? Uh, minutes of the June 27 meeting. Uh, moved by m- Approval moved by Mr. Ruiz, seconded uh, by Alder Zellers. Any discussion, corrections? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye no passes um, schedule of meetings we have one more meeting in July on the 25th we have three in August regular meetings on the 8th and the 29th and a special meeting on August 15th um, mr. Cantrell I will
2: not be I will not be here for the August uh, 28th Planning Commission meeting and I will not be here for the uh, August 15th. Uh, special meeting.
0: Okay, if I tell you the meeting's on the 29th, does that improve your chances of being here?
2: No, I won't be here for
0: that. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, sorry. Noted. All right. Uh, routine business items 1 through 5. I'll uh, read them into the record. Item 1, Legistar 43407. Uh A relocation order required for the construction of the Lakeview Reservoir Pipe Improvements Project. Item 2, Legislature 43436, uh, accepting a public sanitary sewer easement for Christian Kanemeyer and Jessica Kanemeyer across property located at 5144 Spring Court. Item 3, Legistar 43478, a declaration of public water main easement within the Monona Golf Course at 111 East Dean Avenue. Item 4, Legistar 43513, a relocation order uh, for the acquisition of land interests in a number of parts in the city of Madison and the town of Verona. And item 5, Legislature 43519, authorizing the execution of a partial release of platted building setback document for lot 1, lot 42, and lot 43 of the Platte of Autumn Ridge Reserve. Are there any registrants on that?
1: They are not.
0: Uh, motion to approve by Mr. Cantrell, seconded by... Alder Zellers. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. "aye." Opposed? No. That passes unanimously. Uh, bringing us to new business, item six, Legislature four three three one eight, accepting the report and recommendations of the Housing Strategy Committee, Market Rate Ownership Report. Mr. Walker. Welcome was uh, working. I did submit a number of questions to Mr. Wachter. You know, I hope you'll be able to take them up as you go. If you can.
3: Okay. Um, the item before you is the market rate homeownership chapter of the Bino Housing Report, which comes from the City's Housing Strategy Committee. Um, to date, we've passed chapters on affordable housing, which includes homelessness, affordable rental, affordable homeownership, um, market rate rental, senior housing, um, so market rate home ownership and then student housing and then we get to do this all over again. So uh, market rate home ownership, um, I'm going to jump right into it. So, so the first thing we look at um, really is the demand side of things, so really um, growth patterns. So when we look at what was happening in our housing market um, from 2000 to roughly 2007, Um, Our our number of renters was actually shrinking slightly every year, and um, ownership was growing at a steady but not not crazy pace. Um, 2007 ish recession happens. mostly driven by things happening in the real estate and ownership market Um, and we have a real flip happening where pretty much all household growth is happening on the rental side um, and then ownership is flat so that trend um, resulted in we us flipping back to being a majority renter community um, about five years ago Then when we look at sort of the households we were adding and what is that income trend, um, overall we're, we're... Adding people on the lower end of the income spectrum, so under $25,000 per year, and then we're adding a lot of people on the higher end, so $100,000 per year in household income, and in the middle is really flat. So this is a national trend, uh, really, you know, income inequality, and a, a number of other factors that, that go into this. When um, we look at what was happening in just, that should say, ownership on the top. Um, that's a, that's a mistake. So this is uh, what's happening in, in the ownership market. is There's really no growth on the low end. And really the, the heart of our ownership market are households making 50 dollars to $100,000 per year. And we've actually been losing those households. So we've got, had a 10% decline um, in that income bracket of, of ownership. And really all growth of ownership is on the higher end of the income spectrum. So those households at $100,000. Um, or or more. Um, and then we look at who are we adding by age. It's really 25 to 34 year olds, 55 to 74 year olds, so millennials, baby boomers. Again, we're not that much different from the rest of the country. Um, it's just a little bit more pronounced here than if we would pull up uh, national data. And then we look at ownership. Um, again, you see a little bit of growth in millennial homeowners. Um, But the the shift is really towards 55 to 75, 74-year-old homeowners. That's where the growth is. A lot of that is is existing owners just aging in in their houses. Um, But the the median age of a homeowner has shifted um, to be older than it was five years ago, than it was 15 years ago. Um, and then we look at uh, households with children so um, ownership ownership units with children is flat. We have the same number of owners with kids as we did um, in 2000 um, and so all that growth of ownership is in um, households without without kids in the house. so this could be kids moving out um, or it could be you know childless couples or individuals buying houses um, so so that 's what 's happening, so then we, said we wanted to look at sort of well, what do people actually want you know outside of income and, and who they are, what, what are they looking for in, in housing? So we conducted a survey of city of Madison epic and Madison College employees, and we asked them a bunch of questions about well where do you live, uh, why do you live there, um, if you moved, what would you be looking for um, and and from that one of the more interesting things was well, are you interested in purchasing a house in the next two years? And people who own houses not really, they're happy where they are and that comes through in all the data Um, when we asked renters um, regardless of where they were working about half said, no, I want to continue to rent a quarter said, maybe I'll move maybe I'll buy in the next two years and a quarter said, yeah, I would like to purchase in, in the next two years so, you know, there are if, if you're in a steady job making a fair amount of money and renting, there's, there's a good chance that you'll be looking to, to buy in, in the near future. So that's possibly some pent-up demand um, that we're seeing there. Then we asked the, those same group of people, um, people who, who say they plan to buy in the next few years, well, what's, what's stopping you? What's that, what's that main barrier? And the biggest thing was lack of down payment. Um, and then... Related to that is really the large existing debt burden. And when we look at the comments that people wrote in these two things, it's really a story of, well, I'm paying $1,200, $1,500 in rent, and I'm paying hundreds of dollars in student loan repayment every year. How am I going to save for a down payment? This is These things are really tied together in a lot of ways. Um, and it's also um, having a lot of student debt uh Hurts your credit score, hurts you know your debt-to-income ratio, all these sort of things that put ownership a little bit more out of reach. It's not what it's not is the ability to make the monthly payment because in a lot of cases buying a house would be the the same for monthly expense possibly less than people are paying to to rent. Um, and then when it comes to the market doesn't offer the housing type I want, um, this popped up mostly among Epic renters. And the things that they were asking for was re- were really things that were um, a product that's in their price range close to downtown. Um, and when, if we got a little more specific, there was a lot of asking for townhouses, condos, things that we aren't seeing new construction of. Um, they were indicating that they were interested in. And then the prefer renting. Um, This is this is um, for all the people who we also looked at all the people who said that they plan to rent for the next two years. And and when you go through their comments, this is mostly a story of not wanting to commit to to ownership at this time. A lot of the things they said were, I don't know where I'm going to be working a year from now. I don't know if I'm going to be with my partner a year from now, and I don't want to get tied down by purchasing something. They really valued flexibility. Um, and then we followed up with a survey by just doing a couple of interviews with people who were looking, were looking to be first-time home buyers. And that came out really strongly um, that I don't want a house where I would have to do a large renovation because what if I get a new job and have to move? Um, I don't want to, I'm really afraid of overpaying for a house because if I could get out quickly, um, I need to be able to get my equity back. So. That, that, again, shows up in national research um, all the time, that that sort of looking for flexibility is very important. Um, so then when we ask people, well, why do you live where you live? Current owners, you know, it's cost, dwelling type, um, and quiet and safe neighborhood are the, you know, the top things. Epic employees are a little bit different because they're making choices to live in Verona because It's convenient. Um, more so than I really want to live in my house in Verona. Um, what's, what's not important to, uh, to them is really um, alternative transportation. And then you know proximity to amenities for non-Epic was fairly low. And then other is just a whole host of random things that come out. Um, but when we ask the people who are, who are looking to buy what's important to you. A lot of those things are the same, but um, the locational factors become more pronounced. So alternative transportation, proximity to amenities especially, uh, jump up. And when again, going through comments, that wanting to be by something to to do, I want to be by a restaurant, I want to be by those things, comes out really clearly um, in that proximity to amenities. So we didn't define what amenities were. so uh, Berkeley did a really huge study of, of sort of what are those factors that, that drive demand, and it's you know they pinpoint down to proximity to a movie theater, a restaurant, those sorts, sorts of things. That research is out there, um, but it, it's really service-based things. It's stuff to do. Um, so summarizing demand, you know our current owner is older, wealthier, less likely to have kids than than they were in the recent past. Middle-class households are either leaving the market or they're failing to enter the market because of some sort of barrier. Um, And then in general, new households are choosing rental versus ownership, 90% uh, 90 are choosing to to rent of these new households we're adding. Um, And then there's just a preference shift in what what these new potential buyers value when they're looking for a house. Um, We switch to the supply side. So housing prices peaked 2007 um, and bottom out 2012. And, you know, by any measure that you look at, so the Zillow median, assessor average, or what's happening for sales, we've come back to that that peak. So our market has recovered to those post-recession levels. Um, And we look at affordability, um, mostly because interest rates are at, really all-time historic lows, Um, that has pushed the cost of ownership down quite a bit. Um, Property taxes have gone up a little bit, but that 2 plus percent drop in interest rates makes uh, a huge difference. So 2012, this is extremely affordable in comparison Um, to 2007 to to buy. But we didn't see people rushing to go buy houses in 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, So it's something besides just that monthly out-of-pocket that's holding back um, ownership. Um, And then if we take the whole market and kind of break it into segments by, by price, so this is listed price, but a third of our houses are below $200,000, a third of them are $200,000 to $300,000, and a third are over $300,000. So this is condos and single-family home listings. Um, and so if you take what's listed versus what's assessed, um, there's a, a bit of a discrepancy. We have a shortage of those just under $200,000 houses compared to what you'd expect to see. Um, if you look at the whole supply of housing. And there's probably a couple things going on here. One, assessments lag the market. So prices have been going up 5 to 10% per year for the last two or three years. So assessments lag. Um, what could be happening is. That the hottest part of the market are those entry-level houses right around $200,000, and they just don't stay on the market. They they get listed and they're back off a a day later, so they're just not showing up in here because they move so quickly. And the third thing could be that there are certain people or the the people in this uh, who own houses at this price point, some of them could still be underwater. So there's certain parts of the city, certain housing types that have not recovered um, their their value. So they could just be delaying listing them compared to everyone else. And this is a similar pattern you see across the country where there's less of these starter homes being listed than you'd expect because of those factors. Uh, And then if we map, so where where are these houses? Um, I mean, there's some relatively clear patterns as to where house prices are. So, um, sort of close-in neighborhoods, um, you know, that are close to job centers, that are close to a bunch of amenities that have older houses, um, higher valued. And then As you are sort of on the the edge of the city, especially on the west side, you've got new construction houses that again are at the top end of the market. And then in between, you have um, especially the the red houses on here. Um, These neighborhoods are not all the same, but there are a lot of similarities that these are a lot of post-World War II, 50s, 60s, 70s houses. A lot of times you get very large track subdivisions that Sort of lack the amenities. Um, They might might be on the major transit quarters on the edges, but these are much bigger subdivisions, much bigger neighborhoods than you have in some of these downtown places. Um, And then you also have, in some cases, entire neighborhoods of very small houses that are under a a thousand square feet, so that's going to hold down the value as well. So then if we look at well, what's their change over the last five years, where have prices really recovered or not recovered, it's the same places. The places with the, on the higher end have recovered. So downtown, near west side, far west side, um, you know, near east side, all these places have recovered their value and more. And the places that have really lagged and where they have not recovered from from their sort of Bottoming out in 2011, 2012. Um, there's a, a large portion of the east side of Madison. House prices have not recovered, um, and then the, the, the southwest side, which again is a lot of the, the housing stock I talked about of, uh, you know, it's, it's 1950s, 1960s. So it's, it's old enough to probably need some work and lack some actual amenities that people are looking for in in the housing type, as well as the, the neighborhood is. Just a step further from our downtown employment centers, um, and then if we look at how long things stay on the market, which is again another indicator of is, does the housing match up with what the market wants. Um, again, those downtown near West Side um, and some of the newer parts, those move really quickly. Um, and this is 2015 data, and in, in 2016, those would be even shorter days on market. Um, And the places that warehouses stay in the market longer, again, are north side, east side, um, some of that uh, southwest side, things stay in the market quite a bit longer. So, again, they're not matching up with what consumers are are looking for. Um, If we look at sort of what are we adding for new supply, um, early 2000s, you know, we're adding – Uh, about a thousand new single-family homes per year. Um, We peaked much earlier than the rest of the county and really the rest of the the country so we topped out in 2002 2003 whereas the county uh, you know that's like 2005 2006 so we had this sort of gradual decline we've been hanging out at a couple hundred permits per year. so we asked ourselves, well, is this just because we ran out of space to add single-family houses in the city of Madison? No, that's, that's not the case. In the last few years, we've platted 500-plus uh, lots per year, and there are plenty of portions of the city where we could add you know, thousands more housing units if there was demand to go you know, build out new subdivisions. But there doesn't appear to be that demand. Um, so again, summarize, supply trends. Um, overall, things are pretty affordable in historic terms. There's very little supply being added. And the, the places that, where houses stay on market longer, where the, the values are still depressed, um, where the, there's something that's just making it so that market isn't, isn't what's being demanded, we're labeling them opportunity neighborhoods uh, where they have a bunch of these similarities together. Um, challenges. So after the recession, um, there's new financial regulation put in place that really tightened up a lot of these lending standards, um, which is a good thing, but for, household, for especially student households, these households that have pretty high levels of, of student debt, they lack a down payment, there's a lot less opportunity for them to enter the housing market, even if they have uh, relatively strong incomes. So that's keeping out a lot of what would previously have been our, first, our pipeline of first time home buyers. Um, so, and then in our sort of central high demand neighborhoods, there's a lack of, of housing at those starter or mainstream um, housing prices. So. It's difficult to find a house under $300,000 that's sort of move-in ready in in those places where people really seem to indicate that they want to be. And then the opportunity neighborhoods, we have large amounts of that sort of price point housing, um, but it sort of in many ways lacks the, the amenities either in the house or in the neighborhood that this next generation of buyers seems to indicate that they want. So we have disconnects in those two ways. So the recommendations that the the report um, has is is number one, is to really look at those opportunity neighborhoods, um, do a deeper dive into the data to actually define boundaries for those, whether it be by census block group, by neighborhood, by something, Um, and then uh, have a handful of strategies. Number one is to really think of as bringing amenities to those neighborhoods by identifying development nodes on the transportation corridors. Um, The example that comes up every time I talk about this is uh, Sequoia Commons as sort of not a huge development, but it it brings a couple of restaurants, a library and things really into a neighborhood um, and is a benefit for everyone around it Um, and the next thing is we have a business facade grant program where um, it's basically a matching grant that the city gives in certain places um, of the city on major streets um, to put a new sort of face on that that street so we would do the same thing for residential neighborhoods so in these opportunity neighborhoods where housing might be a bit tired this is really about freshening up the the face of of that neighborhood Um, and then the city has a number of home ownership programs that that give down payment assistance or rehab dollars, um, and they're typically income restricted, but there's no geographic preference put on these programs. So this recommendation is really first push those programs into the neighborhoods that really need them, so those opportunity neighborhoods. Um, and so in those places, you we could have a, a higher borrowing limit, we could have lower interest rates, we could. We could tweak those tools so they're really attractive in certain places. Um, And then right now they're usually capped at about 80% of median income. Um, We probably need to push that up to 100% or 120% to get that middle income group of people who are not entering the housing market. Um, But, I mean, they could technically afford it. So they're the people who need that boost. so this is about bringing a, a new generation of home buyer into those neighborhoods that that are lagging behind. And then the second solution is really the, the flip side. So those, all of these neighborhoods that are centrally located, walkable, full of amenities, but too expensive. Um, it's about adding housing types that allow for um, really a wider variety of incomes and meet some of the needs of uh, younger first-time home buyers. Um, and so it's really The sort of middle density products so townhouses, court streets, these sort of things that get you enough density to overcome some of the land cost issues. Um, And so the first step of this is really looking at what are the barriers that we've put in place either um, intentionally or unintentionally um, in zoning, demolition rules and subdivision rules that um, make these kind of things more difficult than, than they are in, in other places. Because this is a product type that a lot of other cities that are comparable to us or have a lot of growth are seeing, and, and we're just not seeing a lot of this product. Um, then we probably need to identify places, because this is not going to be appropriate for certain streets, certain blocks. Um, but if we can find those places where you could really um, insert some of this medium-density development... Uh, That's the second step. And then it probably would take a a push to to do this. So this is recruiting developers who who build this sort of product type in other communities. It could be um, changing some some TIF rules in certain TIF districts to encourage this kind of uh, product type as well, to to nudge it, to create some examples um, for the market uh, as well. So, yep. Yep. That's it. So there's a couple of questions that I didn't really I didn't cover all of them. So the, the first one was impact of things like uh, bankruptcies, short sales, foreclosures on the market over this time. Um, so City of Madison, uh, if if we graph all foreclosures and short sales, 2007 to 2012, um, there's a, a bit of a spike that we saw in 2012-2013. So we typically have Less than one foreclosure per 10,000 houses, so we have a pretty low foreclosure rate. And today's foreclosure rate is the same as it was pre-recession. In the middle, we were seeing more like five per 10,000. To give you a sense of scale, a place like Phoenix or Las Vegas was seeing 70 per 10,000, and they saw that that as a very durable trend for multiple years, whereas we saw it for a couple months. Uh, for a couple of years, so it was probably a factor in things happening in our market. But um, compared to even other communities in Wisconsin, we always had a very low foreclosure rate. I think if there's an, an effect that, that foreclosures had on our market, it's that it's, it's scared a lot of people. So these new buyers who are afraid of not being able to get out, part of what they say is, I'm, you know, I saw what happened to people uh, during the recession. I don't want that to happen to me. Um, There's another question about the effect of schools being in or out of the Madison Metropolitan School District, Um, and so that's going to take more research to find exactly those places that are in or out or on the border and how that affects the housing market. Can you do that?
2: I will try.
0: Because I I think that's a a big part of the story of our community is the disparity between the type of housing that's being built in the city in the school district and in the city and in the suburban school districts. And and I think that that is contributing to the kind of disparities that we're seeing. We've got a 25% minority city and a 50% minority school district. You know, so I think we need to highlight uh, these issues so that perhaps we can address them, and we don't see them, we certainly won't
3: yeah and i can I can definitely work on that I can't promise you but i will I'll try okay. um, and then the last one was was uh, a detail about uh, FHA financing so um, FHA loans come through the federal government you can have a much lower down payment, um, but there are costs associated with that. Um, one of them being that there is a, a mortgage premium that, that rides with it that has a significant cost. One of the other things that comes up with FHA loans is that they look great on paper. They let you put 3% down or 5% down. Um, but there are a, a whole host of restrictions on what that house can be. So it doesn't work with every house. Um, for example, I'm in the middle of selling a house in one of our, our subdivisions that the, the CDA has to uh, an FHA buyer, and we have to have you know, $1,500 of termite protection. Um, we don't really have termites here, but it's one of those things that's a blanket federal rule, and it adds a bunch of costs and complexity to it. So um, that is a level of detail that I did not cover.
0: Well, I thought that I thought that the uh, <clears throat> that the mortgage insurance premium in some examples could be added to this report yeah. because you've got the positives of the FHA sure. without the negatives. Yeah,
3: yeah, and, and it can be a significant amount of
0: of money. It should be obvious. I gave Matt a couple hours on these so that he could be ready. Oh, and the last thing was um, on mortgage interest rates. Your chart goes back. You know, just uh, maybe a half a dozen years. You know, but for those of us who are older and got our first mortgages back around 1980, yeah. uh, you know, a- having a chart that shows interest rates at 14, 15, 16 <laughs> percent would give people a-, a little more perspective than just going back five or six
3: years. Absolutely. And so I, I did graph it, so that's easy. I, I pulled my Federal Reserve data all the way back to 1960. So even even back <laughs> to 1960, it's seven and a half percent interest rate it was the norm pre-stagflation mm-hmm. late 70s. So this is. Yes, extremely low by historic standards and not really an indication that it's
0: going to go back so up. So we've, uh, we've got lights everywhere. Alder Carter first.
4: Yes, thank you, Matt. I just wanted to ask you, you didn't mention um, uh, people that could be in credit card debt. You just mentioned student loans so is the credit card debt um, scenario no longer relevant now?
3: So uh, credit card debt levels have been dropping since since the recession um, where student loan debt levels are having been, having been going up so we chose to concentrate especially on on student loan debt um, but certainly um, these tighter debt-to-income ratios—that's—I mean—that'll that'll cover all of these other types of debt. So auto debt um, has been going up as well, and that's one we did not didn't cover either. But that has a, a big effect.
4: Okay, thank
0: you. Okay, okay. next. I'm sorry, Alder Zellers.
4: Um, Yes, on this uh, last solution, too, it talks about uh, creation of new owner-occupied housing developments. And are those primarily single-family owner-occupied that you're looking at or a mix, condos, townhouses? Um, It looks like you've got a...
3: Sure. Um, Yes, so it could be all of those so what the choice to go sort um, of fee simple or condominium you know that's that's a decision that will depend on the property type um, but it, it's really a, it, about things that could probably go either way so a townhouse can go you can have zero lot line individual lots or you can have you know a condo structure um, it, it just depends on, on the development. Now, going with condos adds another level of complexity. It, it makes the financing harder. It does a bunch of other things that uh, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do things that are truly single family. They're just on really small lots or zero lot line.
4: And, and so in your uh, work, did you identify what the preferences in the market uh, whether townhomes or single-family or condos?
3: So um, when we surveyed people, we asked not this level of specificity. We asked, so for condos, would it be um, a townhouse with green space? Would it be um, an older house that had been divided? Would it be a low rise, would it be a high rise? And the most popular type that people indicated was a townhouse with some sort of small outdoor space. But. It's not like I gave them examples or covered the, the full breadth of it. That's probably something that is worth doing more. Yeah, more
4: yeah if we're going to be encouraging something in this area, it would be nice to know what the,
3: the actual physical form yeah, we're talking about is.
4: preferences yeah. are of the market. Okay, thank you.
5: Mr. Polevsky,
0: uh, accident. Do you mean pre- Okay, no complaints about brevity. Mr. Rui. Ooh, you want me to say I made a mistake too? <laughs> uh, no, sorry. I'm,
6: I'm going back to what, what uh, Ken, what you mentioned about uh, in the city but in a different school district. And I think the state law changed about 1980 that caused that to happen. Up until then, Madison X and the district went sure. with it. Uh, is there any way that we could uh, force The school district uh, might be a negotiation with the developer that when we annex, we can annex and get the school district to change. One example we just did is up in North Sherman in part of Cherokee. We annexed, I don't know, was it 14 lots or something? They're actually in the Wanakee School District. And there's a grade school and a middle school two blocks away that's in the city of Madison. So, is there any tools that we could use to force a better decision on what school district? student uh, residents in Madison have to go to?
3: I have no idea. But well, something I I'm I, I'm Mike,
0: <laughs> Mike, from my past work life, I can tell you that we have none. There is no leverage.
6: Well, perhaps we don't annex unless we get it.
0: Okay. Might um, be up, uh, Mr. Cantrell, I think, wants to add a point on this specific point. Is that correct, Mr. Yes. Patrick?
2: As I understand it, it's, um, um, that 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 would be difficult to do. First of all, the school districts um, detaching the area would have to agree to detach the area. So, if it was in uh, Middleton, they would say, "Okay, we're we're fine to give it up," and uh, the the school district of Madison would have to agree to take it. But um, and, and I don't know if it's even possible to put a condition like that on a subdivision plan
0: um, no. so I, no. or an annexation, the, the, too. The, the, the Madison and the surrounding communities did a series of land swaps about 10 years ago. Yes.
2: Um. They can do that, but both school districts have to agree mm-hmm. to
0: that. But uh, my, my point was, if we knew... What land was in our in the Madison School District or the suburban school district? We could be encouraging different type of development patterns if if we saw different needs in those two situations. So, um, Miss Okay, uh, Mr. Rui, I'll come back to you. Yeah, no,
6: I, what I was asking for is look at some creative thinking to see if we could. Try to get some of that to happen, such as the staff breach is the subject during the annexation process uh, with the school districts, as well as just accepting it, it the way it is. It's too
0: bad, Ms. Vendada, our school board representative yeah. here. But I understand how it works. She's out because of Ramadan.
6: I understand how it works, but my point is, right now we're just laying over and not doing nothing. We should at least try to do something. Right. I'm you not sure what
0: the answer is. Couldn't agree more. Okay, now back to Mr. Pilevsky. You intended it this time? Oh, side? Okay. Whoops. Oh, that was me. So, <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so back I, to the school district. I apologize district. because um, the names up here. Oh, they haven't shifted
7: over yet? No. Um, so <laughs> I'd be happy to sit No. <laughs> back to the school district thing, because I really do think this is a big key issue. Because I, in my district, right in the middle is Verona Schools because the farmer chose Verona Schools and then it was platted and I mean I have this little pocket right in the middle of nowhere that goes to Verona Um, and it's a selling feature for the realtors they list it on their thing Verona Schools as like the number one item on why you would want to buy that house and by the way they sell in a day and they're in that middle bucket so I think it's a big deal but I I think the answer as to why we have 50% in a 25% minority district is parochial schools. So when I'm in St. Maria Greti's school and I walk across the street, I go from 100, nearly 100% white to 50% minority in the same neighborhood. Because those What people don't understand is those parochial schools are very affordable for that range of incomes that we're attracting to the city. And if they have the choice and we're not doing a good job of making the case why they would go to public schools, they siphon them off. I mean, Gretti's expanded, Queen of Peace has expanded, and they're all pretty much non-minority, upper-middle-class children that would have normally gone to a public school. And so if you have that sort of resource constraint and you have a state uh, wanting to further subsidize that push, um, I can just say this flat out, we're going to be screwed if that happens because I think we're already in a bad position unless the school district can figure out some way to remarket themselves. But I hear all the time in my area, the far, I have the farthest southwest corner that's right in the middle of all these, uh, between Pittsburgh, Verona, and, and, uh, and Madison, that that's the number one thing that realtors and homeowners care about is the schools.
3: So uh, So when we ask people, how important are you know do schools rank in making your decision? For those families looking to buy that do not have kids, extremely low. For those with kids, it's right at the top. So, yeah. So, so for a certain part of the buying market, it's extremely important. It's definitely marketed um, by realtors that way. I agree.
0: Um, and finally, I thank Mr. Cantrell.
2: Um, I, I think it would be nice to, for for your report, and I, I think it's a great report, and I, I really enjoy reading it, uh, to identify where those opportunity neighborhoods might be, you kind of described what the criteria would be, the, the neighborhoods that have uh, a lower cost housing, uh, single family, and that the assessed values aren't going up as high and, and staying on the market a little bit longer, but it would be just in a bubble map, you You know, just saying, you know, these are where where those areas are. And, you know, I was looking at the east side specifically. Uh, I used to live on the east side. And around Cottage Grove, the area is kind of just off of uh, um, Monona Drive, uh, north and south of Cottage Grove Road where Royster is is being planned. That's a perfect area where I think that that's one of those opportunity neighborhoods, and that's why the Royster development is so important. You mentioned Sequoia Commons, the the library, uh, with the city's investment on Cottage Grove. I think that's a perfect example of how we could kind of make that area a cool area. And I know that staff is going to be doing a neighborhood plan for that, and I I, uh, think that's going to be great, and I look forward to seeing that. Another comment, the report points out, um, specifically, I think, a market for condos. And I've been asking developers as they come in, you know why are you building apartments we've, we've added thousands of apartments downtown, and we haven't seen any of condos and I think your report mentions that financing is is somewhat of an issue, but I think you should give this report to some of the development community, urban land and um, others that do do apartments and and uh, uh, that I, I think that there is a market uh, for uh moderate priced and even upper because what are we're seeing is um, upper there's there's that market that's buying and and the the lower um, but um but even the middle, I think that that might be an opportunity for them to to get into the the housing market and but my last comment is that you might add some um, uh, National data. Um, uh, you look at oh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, total number of households by age and but and household by age owner owner household by age. You might just throw in where appropriate. Um, some some what what are the national trends in those, um, because I think it would be interesting because madison is is different, and I think that uh, we should kind of recognize what those differences are
3: absolutely, like I mentioned a little bit. You know, management's trends are really not different from a lot of the national ones. They're just sometimes exaggerated because yeah. of a bigger influx of millennials. Our know, mm-hmm. so swings tend to be a
2: little bit larger right. in a lot of cases. Yeah. But um, a, a great report. Thank you.
0: Uh, I'd just like to add in terms of distribution distributed to the financial institutions. I don't think the problems on the developer end, I think it's on the lender end, they're un- they're unwilling to uh, finance condos even though the problem of gl- the glut that they had has long since dissipated. Okay, uh, we've exhausted this subject. A motion to accept the report would be in order moved by Mr. Cantrell, seconded by Alda Carter. Uh, any further discussion? Um, then all those in favor signify by saying aye. Opposed, no. Thank you, Mr. Walker. It was a great report. I apologize to everybody who's been waiting for us to start public hearings at 545, uh, but here we are. I want to remind everyone um, this would be a good time if you haven't already done it to turn off your cell phones and I want to indicate to people who haven't been here before how we proceed. Uh, At the start of the public hearings, we take up all the issues that everyone has agreed to, no one objects to, no one insists on testifying, and we dispose of them uh, in one fell swoop, and then we go on to the uh, the, the issues that require more attention. Are there any changes to the consent agenda since we last checked it out? Item 8, we have registrations in opposition for item 8. So item 8 is off, um, and item 7 is off. You can pull that. Right. Okay, so we have, uh, we have three items on the consent agenda. Items 9... 10 and 11. We have some registrations. I'm sure uh, not wishing to speak. uh, So I will read these in and uh, we'll see if anyone wants to to take them off. Item 9 Legislature 43154 is for a demolition permit and a conditional use dealing with uh, replacing a single family residence on a lake front parcel and construction of a new single family residence and detached accessory building at 5628 Lake Mendota Drive. We have a number of registrants. Diane Cedar, 309 West Johnson, in support available to answer questions. Bruce Rosen, 5826 Lake Mendota Drive, In support, available to answer questions. They are the applicants. Celeste Robbins, 976 Green Bay Road, Winnetka, Illinois. In support, available to answer questions. Anus Rinavasan, 976 Green Bay Road, Winnetka, Illinois. In support, available to answer questions. And Tom... So, Zalewski or Zalewski, 5630 Lake Mendota Drive, uh, neither supporting nor opposing, but not wishing to speak. Are there any questions for any of these registrants? Then moving on, item 10, Legistar 43155, uh, conditional use for a hair salon at 4605 Kennedy Road. Do we have any registrations? We do not. And item 11, uh, Legistar 43156, uh, conditional use to allow construction of a motor freight terminal at 3841 Merchant Street. Registrations. No registrations. Then a motion to approve the consent agenda. Mr. Cantrell, seconded by Mr. Rui. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed, no. The consent agenda passes, uh, bringing us to item Seven. Seven scratched it out. Ledger Star four three three four three, dealing with uh, one oh nine and one fifteen, South Fair Oaks Avenue. Uh, Miss Stodder, could you? Yeah, thank you.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chair. So you have before you something that was, was also before you and the Common Council last summer at about the same time. It's the rezoning of a ten and a half acre site on the east side, the old Garver Feed Mill building on, on property currently owned by the Parks Division. Ten and a half acres of that site would be rezoned from the planned development that was approved last year to an amended planned development. Um, and the slight changes I've tried to uh, be brief in this addendum to last year's staff report, and I I will just go over the the slight changes to the plans again here, and then the applicant, I believe, will be making a a brief presentation as well. Um, So just as as an overview, this project does involve the the complete um, rehabilitation of the Garver Feed Mill landmark building, and also on the site would include a, a brand new Uh, unheated storage building to be shared between the the development and the Parks Division, as well as 50 small micro-lodges built as as tiny homes and available for, for overnight guests to stay in. I think that the the major changes since last time aren't really that major, but one is that the the storage building has been relocated to the west side of the site in order to shift the the tiny homes or micro-lodges eastward on the site, um, providing some proximity to the the Starkweather Creek for some of those micro-lodges. Um, micro lodge units, there are 50 instead of the 48 that were, were formerly approved. And importantly, the applicant does intend to construct those units within a pretty short time period, probably one to two years, all of those units would be completed. Um, the application in whole just includes a lot more detail on the rehabilitation of the the Garber building and includes square footages of various tenants that they're working with at this point. Automobile parking and bike parking have both slightly increased and there's greater detail with regard to the landscape plan. The UDC did review this proposal at their last meeting and provided an initial approval and they'll be seeing it again later this month um, for consideration of final approval of the design.
0: Thank you. Um, I will open the public hearing. Um, the only registrants are the applicant team. Um, so y- your preferences to each take three minutes rather than one? Okay. Then um, that's what we'll do. The first registrant is Brian Maroder, 29 Farwell, uh, in support. We to to speak. Uh, when he gets to the podium, we'll give him three minutes. If he needs another minute, we'll give it to him. All
9: right, well, it's good to see all of you again. Um, again, my name is Brian Kermoder. I'm with Bomb Vision. I have Tom Rogers from Smith Group, JJR, and Lou Holst-Jablonski from Design Coalition, just a small portion of an ever-growing team on this uh, fun and exciting project. Uh, it's really my pleasure to really be here today and to um, share with you an update on, on where the Garber Project stands. I think we've made some really tremendous progress um, since it's been almost a year um, since we were in front of you last. And I really feel like we're getting very close to the finish line, um, which I think will uh, allow all of us to uh, sleep a little bit better. So I wanted to just be um, brief with you about some of the small changes um, Again, the primary function of the building is continuing to be a food production facility. Um, we've got the inclusion of the micro lodge <clears throat> portion of the project as well as the storage um, heating, uh, store, unheated storage building uh, for both Garver uh, use and as well as Brick Botanical Gardens. <clears throat> and we've really come a long way in terms of accommodating for the various different tenants within the building to make sure that the spaces um, meet their needs uh, in, a, in a kind of, different kind of building. Um, I did want to remind uh, the Planning Commission that this is a historic tax credit project, eligible project, so we had, have gone to great lengths to adhere to that standard. or We are currently in the process of our Part 2 uh, Historic Tax Credit application to both the State Historic Preservation Officer as well as um, the National Park Service. Uh, we've gone to uh, We've done a lot of work on the design process, which I think is a reflection of in the packets and the details that you see in front of you. Um, we've stayed in front of the neighborhood. I think I've been there about every other month updating them on the progress. And part of what's been great about the time that we've had is we've been able to formalize some new partnerships, have, which have really allowed the project to expand its community impact. So from a general perspective, and Heather briefly touched on uh, these three um, kind of important updates, um, one is we've worked with staff um, to really uh, enhance the relationship of the different microlodges to one another. That was something that we heard from UDC and from staff about how are we going to make sure that this, these, these different The the variety of what we are expecting in the micro lodges really holds together. And the solution that we came up with, working with both our team as well as staff, and I think even some impact from uh, or some input from UDC, was because we were able to move. Uh, the unheated storage building to the far west, which was an agreement that uh, really served uh, our needs as well as OBRIC's needs, uh, and staff agreed. Um, We were able to kind of break up the micro-lodges into more formal clusters, so you can see almost, um, and maybe even highlighted in your packet, various different pods and I think there's about five in total throughout the project and uh, this really allows us to achieve um, some synergy within the pods on certain design criteria probably just one more minute uh, i mentioned the unheated storage building and that change, and like I said, we've worked with um, staff and parks to come to agreement that that's really a solution that works for all parties. And then the third is to enhance uh, really the exterior spaces around the building um, that works um, not only to accommodate the tenant needs. Um, we have some logistical issues that uh, tenants need to um, have accommodated, but also the public uses as well. So a lot of design detail you see in your packet on both the north and the south patio areas. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Tom, and he's going to talk a little bit more about site plan and some of the specific landscape and circulation issues. And then we
10: available to answer questions.
0: Thank you. You prefer to take questions at the end? Yeah. Okay. That's helpful.
10: Thank you, Brian. <coughs> uh, my name is Tom Rogers. I'm the landscape architect with Smith Group JJR. And Brian and Heather actually covered a lot of. Um, the things that we have changed on the site, but I'll elaborate on a couple of those. As Bryant mentioned, one of the things we've, we've really worked on providing more detail on is Creating a core area that's a destination for the community and, and these two patios on the north of the site and on the south of the site that are public space. The, the center core of the building itself is is a public space and there's a patio on each side that we see as gathering areas. We've enhanced the, the bike parking. There's more on the south end. There's more on the north end. We've changed that plaza and we've actually changed our street cross section to create more of a lunar condition, which is a shared bike street pedestrian area. The... The goal of that is to slow down traffic, to create a more walkable environment, to create a special environment that's really different. Brian also mentioned how we've clustered the micro-lodge pods, um, and that's really enabled us to, to do something to make the site a lot better and, and a, lot more, um, a much better user experience as you walk from one cluster to another. We've combined the, the different... Um, micro-lodges in, in like types. They're not all the same, of course, but you move from one cluster and you move through thresholds and you move through rooms, so you have a little bit different experience at each of these instead of what we had before, which was really more like a street where we were trying to tie them all together. We understood that these are all going to be a little bit different, and by combining them in those ways, we could make it a better experience. Um, circulation is, is very similar to what it was before. We've made some um, refinements that I mentioned with the um, with, with the Woonerf, uh, with the parking, we've increased the parking slightly, and we've added. After working with um, park staff, we've added these this future city bike route and access easement around the east side of the site. Um, Bike access uh, does come up Cap City Trail. We've talked about how circulation will work through here and what's the best way to serve um, bike traffic in here. This this was something that came up last time we were here and we actually met with our transportation planners and went through what's the the best way to handle it. If we have a lot of bikes, if we have a little bikes, if we have a lot of cars. And what we came to was there were a couple things that we felt were really important. one, this is a destination at the end of the line. This is um, rather than being something on a line. Um, two, we have a lot of different things going on here. We have loading on all sides of the building. We have parking on all sides of the building. So one of the things we talked about was, do we add a dedicated bike lane in here somewhere?
0: A dedicated bike what? I mean bike
10: lane through through the site, and we decided against that for really the reason of safety. And one of the things that happens with a dedicated bike lane is you wind up. Um, with the bikers really focused on that lane and thinking they can move through and we want them to be a little bit more aware because we do have loading all the way around the building. Um, we do have vehicular traffic all the way around. So you have you have options. You can come up from Cap City by Trail. There is bike parking at the front. There's public space here. I'll be down in one minute. Um, there's public space here. There's public space on the north side. You can also make your way around the east side of the building. The primary vehicular entrance is on the west side and really more than half of the parking about 65 percent of the parking is on the north and the west side so we felt that that was a a good way to at least somewhat divide that and and decrease some of the conflicts that we would have other than that um, the site is similar to what you saw before and just enhanced and we can take any questions
0: okay um hang on just a second i didn't get a chance to introduce the previous speaker it is tom rogers 6114 creamery court McFarland, uh, and the next and last speaker will be Lujos Jablonski, 2088 Atwood Avenue, in support. Available to answer questions? Okay. Um, I thank you and congratulate you. This is one of the shortest uh, bits of testimony on an important project that I can remember. So, questions, Mr. Rui. Thank
6: you. Uh, you're concentrating biking is going to come off the bike path, and you have to also make, it's going to be coming off of uh, thorough Oaks so period yes. it's going to be. It's got bike lanes. Uh, any access from the north is going to be doing that, so you have to take a look at
10: access from all points, not just the bike path. Yes, we do understand that. Um, and we, we actually looked at options that uh, if you were coming from the north, you could come down past the entrance and use this access or you could come off that access drive. We actually did talk about traffic counts and how much is appropriate and when does this go in. And, again, it was kind of the same. There's not really a, there's not really a design threshold for when that makes sense. And because this is an end-of-route destination, um, our, our transportation planner said this actually, is the best option. Actually, it's a shortcut also get to for to think about it
6: <laughs> if, you're on, a oh, if yes. you're on a lake yes
2: <laughs> so done. thank you yeah
0: mr cantrell
2: i think this is a great development um i do have one comment and and somewhat of a concern um, the, the unheated storage building um, I, I look at the plan of that or the elevation of that, and it's um, I, I guess I, I, it's disappointing in, in one respect. Um, but and I'm sure that you have a response of why you're doing it. I'm sure it's, the cost is a lot to do to, to uh, is part of the reason. But it's on the same plane as the historic building, and even stepping it back just a few feet to, to break that same line and this is the first thing you see and i know you're trying to hide it as much as you can with trees and stuff but those trees are going to be pretty small when you plant them um, it's it's the first thing you see when you drive in from fair oaks so it's just it's it's really like a pole barn um, something you would see and uh, out in egg land. Um and I would I would ask that that you think about how to at least the facade of the building, uh, the, the faces, the, the, the entry point coming in that how you could um, make that a little bit more attractive and I know that we don't want to create something that, uh, looks like the historic building. I know that preservationists think that, you know, uh, a new building should be a new building, and a, a, the old building should be speak for themselves. But but this building is so prominent. It's such a prominent location uh, that uh, I think I would ask Urban Design to really look at it, at least the facade of it, to, to see what they could do. The garage doors, the windows, I mean, they're all kind of just wrong but that's a comment you can respond to it
11: it's an excellent comment and it's one that we've been struggling with um, not just on our design team but with UDC and with Historic and the thing that that both UDC and, and Historic kind of Landmarks keep coming back to is that this kind of building and it surprising as it might sound it isn't just driven by cost I mean there's a lot of ways to design a building like this it's driven by um, our team and those two commissions um, wanting to do something appropriate to this site historically. Um, that's one of the reasons I dragged this out I think I, should, uh, I showed this last time, um, where this is the kind of building that you saw on this uh, uh, that you saw on this site for decades. You know, since it was since it was uh, first an industrial site. Um, Brian, if you could drag out the. Um, the metal the metal um, siding you know there have been a lot of different kinds there have been tracty buildings you know with uh, fins and so on but they're all metal buildings they're all low slope roofs they're all grayish you know uh, industrial type of buildings and um We've really struggled, and and there was this discussion at UDC. Um, You know, what if there were brick on the base? What if there were other other kinds of treatments that could be done to differentiate? It's not about differentiating it from the main structure. It's about, um, like, the only building left on the site historically filled with these kinds of industrial buildings that will be of this character, and they didn't want to go there. They didn't want to pretty it up that those words were used. You know, it's like, this should be an industrial-looking building. And so there was talk of, you know, should we have skylights? Should we have windows in the doors? There's no windows in the doors. None of these have windows in the doors. These kinds of details. But the overall character of the building being a metal, industrial-looking building is something that everybody's wanting. That's how we ended up there.
2: Yeah, but I think you can go back and look at metal buildings you know, you know they had and huts and those sorts of things they were really cool buildings um um but so even even back years ago they had some detail to them i mean i some some minor details it's like as i recall uh, for example the peak of this building um they used to have some sort of rounded thing on the, the top of that peak those sorts of minor things it may make it a little bit more what you're saying
11: yeah. you know, I don't uh, I think, of that time I think vents and you know square vent for example a little bit of signage those kinds of yeah. details can make a big difference yeah for sure.
2: but but also I, I don't know what you think about stepping it back a little bit further it, it, rather than keeping on the same plane, I don't know if you can. Uh, it looks like you have some property uh, farther towards the railroad or the bike trail. Let, um, let me
11: let Tom talk about that because um, um, a big part of the location of that had to do with the hydrology and where the okay. uh, also what Obrick wanted in terms of turn radiuses is for their and sure. So I'll let Tom talk about it.
10: Part of where, as Lou mentioned, why it's sited where it is is because we, we do have garage door access through here. We are pulling vehicles right. over there, so we can't really shift it very far south without starting to impact our drainage and we start to get into railroad property. So we, we didn't have a property that we could drain across in that from that standpoint, and so we, we kind of pushed it as far south as we could because we knew that we wanted to screen this to the best of our ability as well.
2: I guess I didn't see that drainage swale on your landscape plan. Maybe I looked at the wrong drawing.
11: One other thing I'd say is is in term, it, it looks like a big floor, floor plate. It is a big, it's a big building. Yeah. It's like 8,000 square feet. Um, and it looks like it's lined up. Your sense of it in 3D when you come on the site and you're describing uh, that, that's the who cares what it looks like on a site plan what, you're, what you see when you drive in um, the heights and so on um, the the oblique angle that this comes in at means you're seeing it at a glance and even when these trees are small that whole building is basically shielded from your view even with small trees low the car. until you get to about that point back to about here you start making that thing when you hit there, this is in your view shed that's that's to your side. I mean, so we've thought about those kinds of things in terms of the experience, um, having some having some um, awareness that there's an industrial kind of building. We think lends a, uh, an exciting quality. You know, it's it's not a dominating thing. It's not like this thing It's not stuck here. It's off to the side. Um, uh, we actually think that'll work really well.
0: Okay. Are you done? I'm done. Okay. Thank you, Alder Carter.
4: I just have a quick question because somebody emailed me about this, and that is, on your bike rack, does it have the ability to put a three-wheel bike? What I was told was that unless you get there to be the first bike on your bike rack, there's not enough room to put a three-wheel bike, and I don't know how popular those are. They're, they're probably the ones that I could actually ride, <laughs> to be honest, without getting hurt. So, um,
11: what do you... Like the tri- uh, one, one wheel and two wheels? Or the yeah.
4: Wheel? <laughs> no. With
10: the three-wheel, the recumbent bikes, or, okay. or the... Or, there's a couple different versions. I can't speak to how popular they are. I know they have them. Um, what I can say is that there are multiple bike parking options. Mm-hmm. The majority of the bike racks that are here are a standard bike rack, a U rack, which is the, the most typical rack, the most functional rack that you see. Um, and to speak to being able to lock up on the end, there are more than one, there's more than one row here. Uh, there's a row in the front. There are also three rows here, and there's a couple other spots. So there's there's essentially more than one or more than two ends, so there are multiple options for that. Okay, great.
0: Thank you. Does that conclude your questions? Mm-hmm. Mr. Rui.
6: Thank you. You're talking about the view shed coming down the road for more vehicles, but you also have the view shed from the bike path. And that whole site's very visible from the bike path. So that's a concern of mine on that one building is the view shed. Also, could, you pulled out that piece of metal. What's, where is that going to go?
11: That's the siding.
6: The siding. That does not look anything like anything that was ever put up on the site when there were metal buildings. Actually, so you actually look at corrugated metal real corrugated metal as perhaps a material that's more appropriate for an historic metal building on the site. This is corrugated. That's not the corrugated that was traditional in 1940.
11: No, in 1940 uh, tr- tr- corrugated was not traditional at all. What was traditional was flat uh, standing seams the panels about that wide, you were looking at track. Well, I'm talking about
6: the corrugated buildings that are all over town uh, from that era. There's some East, uh, just off of East and Some others in town yet.
11: Tracti buildings, or
6: there's still the. I wanted to visit them,
0: so I know. What He's asking. Mean. He's asking. Do you? Uh, are they tracky? Tracti the manufacturer. Oh, I, just I think
11: they were. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen Corgate on Tracti, but I, you know, well, I'm not. A, I'm not a hysterical there's
6: hysterical some buildings thing. I've seen that are metal that seem to be more. Okay, I know what you mean. They seem to be more appropriate than Sir, what they are showing. it wouldn't be like. It would be like this. In other words, some the, of those flat the, the, the metal. Of and, and they also had better window treatments and better door treatments than what you're proposing. Better how? Uh, you you look like you've got a metal sliding uh, vertical door on these, as opposed to a lot of those buildings actually had wood doors on them, or at least metal doors that had windows in them.
11: The big difference historically is is that um, oftentimes they would have side sliding with barn door hardware. Uh, Obert didn't want that. That's uh, um, Those doors, there's not the space for it. They wanted. they wanted a lot of parking bays, the only rea- real well, way to that, analyze. What those. Well, so that's a that big difference between... That particular
6: style door could be made to uh, look like that, an overhead
11: door. Tough to do because it's surface mounted. The, uh, a, a door that slides sideways, the surface has to be outboard right. of the wall. Yeah. The, a door that goes up has to be inboard of the I'm wall. I'm talking so about
6: how it looks. Yeah. Oh, the appearance of it I don't want to design it but I'm not happy uh, same as Mr. Cantrell and I think UDC has to take a serious look at that building and take a relook look at it. I'm not going to fight the metal component but let's look at something that was more traditional metal uh, that we find in some areas especially in the east side of Madison now as opposed to something that doesn't seem to be more the modern style of metal and probably I think we can do better.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rui. Ms. Berger?
12: Hi. Um, I was just thinking back of when you were here last, and I I think that there was a little bit of discussion about engaging um, not only the bike path, but potentially the creek um, as, as you know, um, kayakers or canoers or whatever coming down the creek and somehow, you know, engaging with the development. And I'm not seeing anything on the plan here. I was wondering if you had discussed that or if there's just something I'm not seeing.
10: That is something that we did talk about last time. And we do think there is opportunity for a future kayak launch in this location that could be um, developed with the Tiny homes, And we have allocated space for that to happen right here so that you could access it. A car could drive up. You could get to a future building that could be here. We have not designed that portion right now because that is a future thing. And therefore there would be an opportunity to access across that.
12: Is that stormwater area, though, kind of prohibit it at that point?
10: the stormwater is here, we would have to make an accommodation to get around that. Okay. Um, To, at this point, it would.
12: Be. Okay. I mean, I guess... Yeah, it, I, I'm not sure if it, if it would work or not, but I think it was a cool idea, and it would we, be
10: nice. We like we the idea. It's also something we would have to work out with parks because it is on that property.
12: Sure. So
10: it's something that we're interested in. Um, it has been brought up. We would like to do it, but it would be an ongoing thing that we would have to develop with parks.
12: And you're saying that the current design doesn't necessarily it, prohibit it by kind of lining up that area. With this does
0: not animals. preclude that from happening.
12: Okay.
0: All right. Well, Alder Carter, did you... Push your button again? I
4: did.
0: Okay. Here you go.
4: When you were at UDC, you had a bigger photo of the um, old warehouse. Do you have that with you tonight? Okay, never mind.
0: Okay, any further questions for these registrants? And thank you. I'll close the public hearing. Are there questions of staff? Is there a motion? Uh, approval moved by Alder Carter, seconded by Mr. Paleski. Uh Discussion on the motion? Mr. Cantrell. Yeah.
2: Well, since i raised this issue, I, at least I'd like Urban Design to look at the, the storage building again if they Could because I know they're focused on some other things, the 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 pods for the little houses and those, and I'm I'm not as concerned about those issues, but and and maybe they'll just come to the conclusion that hey, it's good as it's going to get, but uh, I hope. Hope that through their review, that um, they could look at the, the the unheated storage building and specifically look at the the elevation that fronts the, the main entry road and look at the doors and the windows and and just that that, that facade of that of that building because I do think it's 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 very it's vi- very visual uh, it's 24 25 feet high so it's it's going to be a pretty large building and Garber is such a beautiful old historic structure and I guess I don't want to detract from the, the beauty of that building by putting something that, that I feel is inferior uh, but I understand that, that the purpose of it but I, I feel that we should they should take at least another look at it and that's that would be my request for a friendly amendment tonight.
0: thank you Mr. Mr. Rui? Um, I,
6: I want to concur with that. Um, one of the concerns I had is uh, I think the one side of the building that faces a bike path is not very attractive. Uh, the users of the bike path are going to see those four garage doors and the, and the service door. They're going to get quite an impact on the bike path. It's not just for the motor vehicles coming in. And I'd also like to see something that maybe looked more conducive to how a metal building would have looked in 1940 versus what appears to be an attempt at a 19 or 2016 metal building. So I'd like to see it at least have some historic uh, metal component to it as opposed to just being another building.
0: Thank you. Mr.
5: And i I'm. Um, speaking in favor of the motion, um, uh, I understand and appreciate the concern with the storage building. I can't speak to anything other than the warehouses that currently exist at Dickinson and Mifflin, which I had had the pleasure of viewing for 25 years in my employment at the Department of Safety and Professional Services. Those are not um, any great shakes to look at. Um, They are historical because certainly the current owners haven't done anything to them in many years but paint them and paint the roof now and then. Um, I don't share the concern that there is a platonic ideal of the 1940 metal building um, I, I think that the UDC when they are taking a second look at this should probably bear in mind the desire to weigh risk of the historicity of the building with innate, in ideal of we want to make this look nice. It seems to me that the design that we've been told about here um, hits the verisimilitude of historicity um, bang on, and it certainly serves the use. Um, I don't know that you want to make it. I I remember last time, this is presented, and I was um, convinced that the historicity of the metal industrial building was bang on. I'm sort of looking at, well, in Japan, they rebuild the buildings for thousands of years. And they say, this is an old building we just finished working in the last year because they replaced the part as they go along. I'm not convinced that this is wrong for the site. Um, but if UDC can come up with a better platonic ideal of the 1940s metal building, go for it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Mr. Cantrell. I'm
2: sorry to speak one more time, but I, the, the reason why I'm, I'm more concerned about uh, this building Because the last time, this is one of the changes from the last time, this storage building has been moved from where it was tucked away to the main entry point. So... I wouldn't be as concerned if it was on the opposite side. And I understand why they wanted to put the, the little houses that are the little whatever on that side <laughs> facing the, the stream. I mean, that, that's very understandable to me, and I totally support that. But because of that, because of that change, you're moving it to a much more visible site, and that's why I'm a little bit more concerned about it. So that's why I raise this point, and, and, uh, and I'll shut up. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I believe we have a motion. Um, All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed, no? Passes unanimously. Thank you.
10: Um,
0: I I I think that that's in. Okay. Um, Bringing us to item 8, Legistar 422, Nine, nine, a conditional use to allow construction of a personal indoor storage facility at 4019 Marsh Road. Mr. Went.
11: Yes, thank you, Mr.
1: Commissioner. Let me just get my notes
0: here.
1: Get um, them before you at... Uh... 4019 Marsh Road is uh, the approval of a conditional use to allow the construction of a personal indoor storage facility uh, within the IL zoning district. Uh, The... The applicant is requesting approval of uh, eight personal indoor storage warehouses containing approximately 320 uh, storage units um, in hopes to commence that uh, construction as soon as possible uh, following potential approvals. Uh, The proposed storage buildings range in size. um, Essentially, there's about 14 to 65 of the units depending on uh, the building size overall. Um, They are accessed to exterior doors and internal doors generally as depicted on the plans. Uh, There's a management office. Uh, for the overall storage facility as a whole um, on the northwest corner of Building A. Um, the, uh, essentially, the, the character of the proposed indoor storage facilities appears to be consistent with the character of the other new industrial and commercial buildings uh, that have been developed in the surrounding area in the, uh, the recent uh, uh, present, I guess. Uh, the statement of the purpose for the IL district generally recommends uh, a mix of light manufacturing, office, flex space, storage, and warehousing units be developed on parcels with relatively direct access to the regional highway system. Um, generally, staff feels that this uh, is being done in a manner consistent with the adopted goals, objectives, and policies of the comprehensive plan and the local neighborhood uh, development plan, which is the Marsh Road neighborhood plan. Essentially, the Planning Division recommends that the Planning Commission find the standards are met and approve the conditional use request to allow construction of the personal indoor storage facility at 4019 Marsh Road, subject to the input at public hearing and the following conditions as listed in your staff report.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Went. I will open the public hearing. The first registrant is David D. Wood, 3200 uh, Larson Road, Madison, in support, available to answer questions. Are there questions for Mr. Wood? Then thank you. Uh, The next registrant is Deborah King, 4005 Marsh Road, opposed, wishing to speak, to be followed by Gordon King, same address, same position.
13: Um, Hello. Um, We um, live right next door to this piece of property. And I'm going to tell you that um, I have one other neighbor next door to me who's 85 years old that doesn't go outside because she's been falling all the time. Um, We're considered A2. Her property and our property is zoned. There are three other homes that are next to the property that he wants to build by, which are all residential ones. One of the homes is in the process of being sold where the new owners aren't even aware of what's going to be going on. I did learn that on Thursday from the man that owns the house, waiting to have the house signed over to them, which I think is unfair that they don't know from the realtor And have no idea about this. Um, I think that um, this is going to cause a lot of problems. Um, We have a really nice tree line um, so we don't have to see pelicaries in our backyard waste transfer station. Now what we're going to have you know we have a tree line it pretty much takes care at least two and a half seasons out of the year which is all those trees are going to be taken down because that would be his property. Um, So we would have to look at storage units. And over on the side of our property, in the front, on the side, going around and then going around this way, that's all we would see would be these warehouses. We have not seen what... um, He's, his ideas at all, so we have no idea about how the planning is, where the entrance is going to be, about the lights, where they're going to be. Um, he is across the street from us now, and he's got these red flashing lights on all night long that I can see when I get into my bed at night, which is irates me, um, and the lighting. Um, That is going to be around our home. We also have a septic system that we just had put in three years ago, which you know I don't know if any of you are aware how many how much thousands of dollars and the cost of having to redo your yard and grass seed and having to do the maintenance on that um, was a summer job for me. Um, The water that would come in to our property from it coming downhill. He's uphill. We're going downhill. It's gonna ruin our septic. Um, About, I don't know where his entranceway is going to be. I don't want it by my property. I want a fence all the way around. Can you wrap up in a minute, please? Yes. I'd like to have a privacy fence, two-sided, at least eight feet or higher, so I have my privacy in my yard. I have no idea how the shadowing will be. Um, I'd like to be able to use my yard and have my privacy. Questions for Ms. King? Yes.
2: Mr. Cantrell? Is your lot directly north, or is it uh, one lot farther north than?
13: It's just, it would be north, he's south. So he's right next door. I mean, so here is my house. It
1: adjoins.
13: It adjoins. It adjoins. The property adjoins. Okay,
2: and you you have kind of a on March. We're at four
13: thousand five. They're right here.
2: Okay, yeah. so you have you you're directly adjoining it. Right?
13: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay.
2: Um, and you weren't uh, uh, sanitary sewer wasn't available to your house.
13: Um, when the city um, widened the road, mm-hmm. the architect that designed the road had retired three years before after before the road had been put in and so all the homes that are on were town of blooming grove Mm -hmm. and when that road got widened the new person that was ahead of this didn't really think so no we we would have we don't have it that's interesting (laughs) don't have sewer yeah okay any I did check into that. It was going to be like over $25,000 to hook up with the city in Madison because, yeah.
6: Thank you.
0: Okay. Any other questions for Ms. King? Thank you, Mr. King. The next registrant is Gordon King. Same address. Opposed wishing to speak for three minutes. welcome mr king i have three minutes if you need another one we'll be happy to give it to you
14: okay uh gordon king i've lived there for 32 years um uh, you know my just let me start over my concerns are pretty much the same as my wife's, but maybe I can describe them a little more in detail. The uh, our, our septic field is probably like 10 to 12 feet from the property line, which is directly downhill, and it's probably from the road. Probably, I'm guessing about 75 feet back, but it directly adjoins his land and with the uh, his land is uphill from ours and with like grass and what's there now the drainage is not going to be the same as if it's a paved lot and I'm thinking in order to control and it would be directly in line with hitting our basement and other things and I'm thinking it would need curbing correct drainage and probably storm sewer to the road to make it suitable so it doesn't ruin my septic and perhaps go to my basement. Um, That's what I'm thinking about the septic field. Um, I'm thinking for privacy and security, I would like to have along the, the whole adjoining property line from the road all the way to the back. I would like to have at least an eight foot high double sided privacy fence to keep I don't want to see the people at the mini warehouses I don't want them to see me I don't want them throwing trash I would like a fence high enough that they can't throw trash into my yard or that they can't see my garage that is ninety feet away and think well geez I could go over there and grab some stuff and wheel it into my mini warehouse and uh, they'll never know where it went and it'll be gone. I got brand new cars out there. I don't want these people to come in. I know Mr. Wood has had vandalism problems across the street. We've talked. He's had tagging, various things. It's taken place. He's done some security measures and he does pretty good but he's not next door to any houses. Nobody lives there. It's just commercial buildings. There's nothing they can hurt. He doesn't have any dumpsters on his property which would make maybe going over the fence into a little wooded area next to my house pretty convenient. Um, along with this, I would actually think that perhaps an actual security fence adjoining the privacy fence going around the whole compound and then with a, a gate that can be accessed by customers only, and I'm sure that that can be done. Can you summarize in the yeah. half a minute? Be, I can try. <laughs> um, a gate that would uh, let in the customers only, and I know that can be done because I've been keyed into places where I truck drive before, and I know that's totally possible. I would keep the people in who's supposed to be in, not letting the people in that aren't supposed to be in, because I know you're hidden back there. You're going to be going back into a corner where it's kind of a woods and stuff, or, or just there's nothing back there for no way to police it. Really, you know, it's going to be dark. But my bedroom window is about 110 feet from there, and I want a high enough fence that he can have all the lighting that he wants, but I don't want to shine it in my bedroom window. Because that, for my use, values, and the enjoyment of my property as it exists, is going to take that all away. And that is. Item number three on the list, and, and that's what I'm concerned about.
0: Okay, thank you, Mr. King. Other questions for Mr. King? Mr. Rui. Uh,
6: do you have a one-story or two-story home? I have a one-story home. That's why I thought I was just thinking about a, a possible fence site Okay, thank you. Okay.
0: Okay. That concludes the registrants. Are there questions for um, any of the registrants, the applicant, or others? Are you the applicant? Uh, uh, I believe that um, I'd be willing to bet that Ms. Berger has a question for you, right? Come on up, Mr. Wood.
12: Hi. So I'm sure this is probably what you wanted to address, but I was going to ask you to address a couple of things. Um, on your plans, it looked to me like m- most of the trees are staying. If you could talk about which trees are staying, which trees are going, and also about your plans for fencing and drainage. Right. Um, I,
15: I'm, I'm really surprised about all the questions that came up because I met with Gordon back in April. We walked the property together, and the plans indicate, as we talked that day, that phase one will take out one tree. Okay? Um, the very next day, his wife called and went through a bunch of points, and the one, first one was lighting. And I said the current plan show no lighting being shown on their property at all. The second was noise and doors, and the current plan show all the, all the storage doors to the inside. The other issue she had was the septic tank and the runoff, and I'd actually moved those buildings on that lot line five more feet than the city requires. If you look at the engineering and erosion plan, you'll see that there's a swale that goes through there. You'll see that we're carrying all the water off, responsive through a retention situation and drainage all the way to the back where, where it belongs to the whole Commerce Park. So um, she brought, talked about lights. There are no lights. We talked about noise. There will be no noise because all the stuff in the inside. There's going to be nobody to, to see anybody. That building is 14 feet tall. It's 65 feet wide. I know I can't throw something over the top of that building. Okay? Um, traffic and storage is very, very minimal. Today you can drive through Crick Kip and come all the way back behind Pelletieri and be like a kidney candy store and no place. is completely open. There's nobody to watch. Debbie references cameras. My marking position in my storage facility is safety is the number one goal. All my cameras have a red blinking light designed to warn people who want to be not an upstanding citizen. Here's a guy that cares. I also have merchandise with the city of Madison, the Dane County Sheriff of Wisconsin-Canon SOS. We have an active canon dog training program going on. You can see it on the website. May 19th this year, we got an award from the Dane County Sheriff, the public service award from the Dane County Sheriff, because we sponsor, along with all of those programs, we sponsored Beltline Bob on the Beltline. We wrote a check to help keep that thing alive along with American Family. He matches vandalism. Two situations seven years ago, tagging the very front building, and that's been it. Gordon is also a customer of ours. He enjoys the security safety features we have got going on. So today you've got nobody back there No buildings, no structure. People can come in through the back. With with buildings and cameras and sophisticated management system, you're not going to have the problems he's suggesting. Again, the water thing is being taken care of by the system I mentioned. There is no lighting facing their building at all. There's going to be no noise because that building is 65 feet from the lot line after 20 feet, 5 feet more than what's required, and then you've got a 30-foot drive. Mm-hmm. They have seen these. When I, went, when I walked with Gordon, I
12: had the plans. Okay, and can you just clarify again? You said that one tree would be lost in the first phase. I assume you're implying that no trees will be lost in any other at phase.
15: Phase two, we're looking at taking all the small volunteer trees that are within three foot of the lot line. Okay. That's about seven trees. Most of it's scrub brush. When we walk through all those there. trees, almost all of the large trees are on the property, and we're not going to touch those.
12: Okay, and um, I know that the um, staff report talks about form or finalizing the details of a, a, some sort of privacy fence. Would you be willing to commit to an 8-foot privacy fence? I have defense? no
15: problem with that. We, we talked about um, putting in dividers or trees or something like that, but a 6 to 8-foot fence is fine. And. I already talked to the city about the idea of having the nice side out to them versus doing the reverse. You know how that whole game is played, and it makes no sense to me to put the nice side next to a building that's all metal that nobody's going to see. The only consideration I would like to suggest, back to my safety positioning, on my other facilities, I do have a camera shooting down the back side of the building. That would require a camera with a red blinking light. So I could take the red blinking light off that installation so there would be no lights at all. But as part of my marking position delivering all these accoutrements to safety, the red blinking light is a nice signal to tell people I care. I mean, I take this down to the nth degree. The guy who mows my yard is retired Dane County Sheriff. So I take this all very seriously. Okay.
12: Um, and I'm sorry, one other thing that I forgot yeah. to ask about, um, they mentioned... Um, There's no ability to to put trash. Do you have any trash receptacles? Do you plan to have any trash receptacles here? No. I don't know how that works in the business.
15: In the industry, the last thing you want to have, if you store with us, we go through our process together on the relationship, and we instruct you that you need to take everything with you that you brought. You drive both these facilities. You do Google earth, and they are spotless. If I start providing a dumpster, then I become... A collection of junk we don't do that i've been doing this for 13 years
12: okay thank you that makes sense
15: any other questions uh, mr Rui, next yeah yeah just
6: uh she uh Berger pick it up at the end you're willing to uh, put in a six to eight foot high fence sure in the property line. Okay. uh i guess that's Working with them and with the city staff on that particular issue. Not a problem. Okay,
0: thank you. the Carter?
4: Yeah, I have a couple questions. I personally wasn't thinking of a dumpster, I was thinking of some trash reciprocals.
15: Um, what are you thinking? Give me an idea. Well,
4: like if they were bringing in um, a big gulp and wanted to throw it away. A big one. I was thinking of that kind of trash can versus
0: a, a, a a, dumpster. A drink from a convenience store. You know, you know, I, you know
15: this is going to sound, you you won't believe it. Tigo Drive the facilities we have very high quality customers that care because we talk about caring. If I'm walking with you to show you a storage facility, and we're walking down together, and I happen to see a cigarette butt in the place is fully signed. Guess what I do? I pick it up in front of you. I do it for two reasons. One, it's got to get picked up to maintain the quality that everybody else is asking. And two, I do it in front of you so you know that I care. It gets in the mind that people know that I care about this place. The places are spotless. Will I have a mover moving and want to get hydrated and leave a bottle in the corner of the store? It happens. But I'm there all the time and picking that stuff up. Okay.
4: The other thing is, are you using a landscape designer for your property? Yep,
15: yep. The landscape plan has been vetted by Paul Skidmore. Yeah, You'll see, you have a landscape plan. You probably on the Paul. Probably heard that name before. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> um,
0: are there any additional questions for Mr. Wood? Thank you, Mr. Wood. Thank you. A- any additional questions for uh, one of the kings? And then I will close the public hearing. Is there a motion?
2: Mr. Cantrell. I move approval um, and ask that uh, staff consider a 8-foot high fence along the north property line.
0: Seconded by Mr. Rui. Ms. Berger.
12: Any question for the maker of the motion. Is there any reason not to make it a condition instead yeah. of just that staff look at it? Well, yeah. okay. Condition well, on an 8-foot fence.
1: Yeah, well, it should be modification to item 3. Then. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah okay. I think they talk about 6 or 8. You right. right. mentioned 6 and 8, eight but, or yeah. hedges, or whatnot. Right. right. It's so it's so really specifically a 6-foot-high
2: really eight eight. Eight. fence. 8-foot-high eight. Uh, eight okay. fence. Um, uh, uh, condition uh, number 3. Thank you. Subject is a review and approval. Okay.
0: Anyone else? Anyone else? All those in favor of the motion signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Passes unanimously. Uh, business by members. Secretary's report. Uh, Secretary's report, upcoming matters,
1: uh, July 23rd, or 25th, excuse me, I keep getting these dates. Um, let's see, uh, items to highlight, uh, 6502 Milwaukee and 6501 Town Center. We've uh, amended PDGPSIP, so uh, a piece of the Metro Tech uh, development uh, coming in for uh, so actually getting some traction on one of the corner sites there at Metro Tech that's uh, been a bit stagnant. Um, 4818 Mineral Point Road is the uh, Mid- Midtown Police Station. That's uh, another item. No. know um, on August 8th uh, let's see 418 Division Street uh, is a convert from TE to TSS is a demolition of a building and the construction of a apartment building kind of right by Shep's uh, the ice cream facility there uh, 412 to four uh, 414 South Baldwin is a uh, rezoning from TE to TSS to convert and expand an existing building into a boutique hotel and um, Let's see, 707, 713 East Johnson is a rezoning from TRV2 to NMX, so demolition of a couple uh, uh, small homes there uh, and a kind of interesting micro-unit type uh, uh, product coming through. Um, otherwise, uh, 702 North Midvale, uh, Hilldale is coming through with, with an additional modification to theirs where they're uh, taking out some of the indoor spaces and opening it up to an uh, outdoor uh, plaza, if you will, so kind of adding some nice amenity there. And another one at 114 Milky Way, which is an additional multifamily family over on the east side. So, yes, we have a few larger projects going back at us.
0: That's it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay. Uh, motion to adjourn. Moved by Mr. Rui, seconded by Ms. Alder King. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. Opposed, no. We're adjourned. See you in a couple of weeks, people.